from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. This is Robert Siegel, former host of NPR's All Things Considered. Great Podversations features nationally recognized writers and journalists in candid conversation about books, ideas, and these challenging times we're experiencing. Great Podversations is produced by the University of Louisville Kentucky Author Forum, and it's an honor for me to continue my long relationship with this series, which televises its forums on PBS affiliates as Great Conversations. Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Philip Rucker speaks with NPR journalist Mara Lyason about Mr. Rucker's number one New York Times bestseller, A Very Stable Genius. Philip Rucker is the Washington bureau chief at the Washington Post, and he has covered Congress, the Obama White House, and the 2012 and 2016 presidential campaigns. He serves as an on-air political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Mara Lyason is a national political correspondent for NPR. Her reports can be heard regularly on NPR's award-winning news magazine programs, Morning Edition, and All Things Considered. Lyason provides extensive coverage of politics and policy from Washington, D.C., focusing on the White House and Congress, and on political trends beyond the Beltway. We hope you enjoy this great podversation with Philip Rucker and Mara Lyason. I am Mara Eliason, the national political correspondent from National Public Radio, and I am thrilled because today I am on this podcast with Phil Rucker, who is someone I really like and admire and has written a terrific book called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America with his colleague, Carol Lenig. And um, I know we're not on video, but there's a picture of the book and everyone should run out and get it. And uh, I just want to say welcome, Phil. I'm really thrilled that you're here. And how is the book doing? Well, Mara, thank you so much for uh, for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. We uh, we used to sit next to each other in the White House briefings back when uh, back when they took place earlier in the, the Trump administration. Briefly, and, <laughs> briefly, and and that was a treat. And uh, I'm an admirer of your work too. So uh, so it's a real pleasure to get to chat with you. And the book is doing well. It was a, a big bestseller a year ago when it came out in hardcover, and it's now out in paperback with a some updated reporting, new chapters on. Um, the president's impeachment over Ukraine and an updated epilogue. And, and we hope everyone can check it out and, and get a copy. I know it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future, but I do believe that there will be Trump studies in colleges all over the country. It will take years and years to really figure out what happened and what his administration meant. But I do think your book is going to be required reading in any of these courses. So I want to start by just asking you, what would be the syllabus description in the course catalog when they come to your book? You know, what's the kind of 25 words or less thesis about what this book tells us about the Trump administration? You know, Mara, I think the book is what students would read if they're trying to understand what really happened behind the scenes and why why the president did what he did and what the consequences were for the country. And it depicts the chaos and the dysfunction, but in a really granular sense. And so you learn new things about uh, what motivated this president's decision-making style, what motivated his chaotic management, uh, what motivated his uh, 
impulsive, oftentimes irrational uh, moves as president and, and why that was so catastrophic in some regards for the country and, and, you know, for the people of America. And what do you think motivated it? Some people have given a kind of psychological explanation. He was a grandiose narcissist and he had to have everything make, make everything about him from I alone can fix it at his uh, nominating convention to the incredible self-regard that he exhibited all the time. What do you think was his basic motivation? Why, why was he like this? I think that's part of it. And, and certainly Carol and I are not medical professionals, so we're not diagnosing him in that regard. But, uh, look, he, he had an incredible, um, ego and, and narcissism about him. And that drove so many of his decisions. And it got to the point where he would tune out the experts. He would, you know, lash out at, at the professionals in the government who were trying to guide him and steer him and, and help him make the best decisions for the country because he thought he knew best. And time and again, we found examples in our reporting um, where the president didn't actually know the basics of world geography or the the fundamentals of American history. Uh, even when he went to visit Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, the, the USS Arizona Memorial, he had to ask John Kelly, his chief of staff at the time, what that was all about. He didn't know what had really happened at Pearl Harbor. And, and so he had this, this ignorance going into the job, and yet he had this extreme confidence in his own uh, intelligence and his own ability to make decisions without any of the so-called experts around him because he didn't trust them. Well, let's talk about how he assembled his team. You know, transitions, presidential transitions are kind, sometimes like first dates. Um, the whole yeah. relationships relationship is there if you just pay attention and think about it as much. So a lot was revealed during the transition. And you have an incredible story that you start the book with about how Michael Flynn got his job. What did you learn in the transition that really explained a lot of the subsequent uh, behavior of the Trump administration? You know, it's such a good point to start with the transition because that's where um, the foundation was set for this presidency. And to begin with, there was very little planning that went on. Chris Christie was the chairman of the transition and did do planning. But the day after Trump won the election in 2016, he got rid of Christie and effectively threw away those planning binders and started over from scratch and hired people based almost entirely on loyalty, that that would be personal loyalty to Trump and to his family, and based on aesthetics. I mean, central casting. He wanted people who, in his mind, looked the part. He thought he was casting for a reality television show. And it turned out those are, you know, obviously the wrong attributes to, to be looking for uh, when you're trying to hire senior people in the U.S. government. Uh, and, and that's why there were so many problems at the get-go. I mean, Michael Flynn turned out to be a really catastrophic choice for national security advisor, not only because of his, you know, er erratic decision making over those couple of years prior, but because of his web of conflicts of interests. He was working for the Turkish government. He had these relationships with Russia. Uh, there was just a lot there that compromised his ability to do that job. And it's one of the reasons why only a couple of weeks into the job, he ended up getting fired. Did Trump know about this before he chose him? Was Michael Flynn vetted? <laughs> <laughs> he was he was vetted insofar as Trump knew Flynn from the campaign and knew him to be a fierce defender of his and thought, this is my guy. This is my loyalist who has my back. He's a lieutenant general and he's defending Trump. And that 
to President-elect Trump was enough. Uh, there, w- there was not the kind of traditional vetting operation that we're used to seeing in presidential transitions. Uh, the vets were really, you know, did this person defend Trump? Did this person say anything critical about Trump on social media? And uh, if the answers are yes and no, boom, they're hired. Right. You know, it seems that Trump did not expect to be president and certainly didn't do a lot of thinking about what he would do if he became president. And I do remember uh, on election night when he came out, when it was clear that he was going to win, that I've never seen someone look so shell-shocked before. It was like the dog caught the car and had no idea what he was going to do with it. You know, it was just he was in shock. So I guess I'm asking you, do you agree with that? Did Trump have any idea of what he wanted to do when he became president? Or did he think that he would lose narrowly and go on to use that to build his brand? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I had the same observation you did um, from election night that he he just didn't expect to win. You know, he had faith in his message. He thought he was he was channeling the the views and the grievances of a majority of Americans, although of course he he still ended up losing the popular vote. But he didn't actually conceptualize what it would mean to be president until election night and he had to give that speech. And it was actually the victory speech that he gave on election night in twenty sixteen was probably the most sort of moderate in tone that we've seen from President Trump because he was going through the motions, right? Of what um of what he knew all of the pros and the elites would want to hear. And then a few days go by and he really started to dig in and build the administration he wanted. He brought on Flynn. He elevated Steve Bannon. He uh, eventually uh, got to the inauguration and talked about American carnage. And and that was the beginning of a very different kind of presidency than the one he had previewed uh, in that victory speech. Right. I want to ask you about Chris Christie, because, of course, Chris Christie did plan a transition yeah. That ultimately was thrown in the garbage can, as you said, you know. But why was Chris Christie planning the transition in the first place if he had put Jared Kushner's father in jail? You know, it's so interesting because there's all this tension, of course, between Christie and Jared Kushner. But uh, in the summer of or the spring, really, of 2016, when Trump became the presumptive Republican nominee and had to actually uh, build a, a transition team. Christie was really the only senior government official person in the president's orbit. He'd been a governor. He'd been a U.S. attorney. He knew his way around Washington. He understood how to structure a government. And it was sort of an obvious choice for Trump to make to, to have Christie take charge of this transition operation, despite the tensions with Kushner. And, and Christie got an office in Washington. He brought in people to work for him. He built up, a, a by all accounts, a pretty impressive transition plan. He had shortlists for people for all of these jobs. But it was never going to work out because ultimately, if if Trump won, Jared Kushner was family and he was going to um, supersede whatever Christie did. And of course, you know, n- not more than 48 hours after the election, Christie was canned. His plan was thrown in the dumpster and uh, and Jared and Ivanka helped choose Michael Flynn. There is this was this theme in the early days of the Trump administration, and you talk about this in your book. It was the the adults in the room theme. I think it turned out to be a myth. The adults in the room were these people who were qualified and respected, Jim Mattis or John Kelly or Rex Tillerson for a while, and they were going to corral Trump's worst instincts and 
channel him in a positive direction. Chris Christie, you could say, was one of those. But one by one, they disappeared. What happened to the adults in the room? And why were they never able to work together to keep Trump from going off the deep end again and again? So early on in his presidency, Trump was willing to take guidance from the so-called adults in his room. But he eventually grew more confident in his own instincts and his own knowledge of the government and just ground through those guardrails. Um, he tormented some of these people. He fired uh, Rex Tillerson by tweet, famously. Um, you know, his relationship with Mattis got so strained at the end after two years, uh, and, and they disagreed, of course, over the decision regarding troops in Syria uh, that Mattis resigned. And of course, John Kelly was out the door after two years. You know, these guys tried to construct the president and they viewed their job as effectively saving the country from the president. And uh, Trump really came to resent that. And in the later two years of his presidency, he elevated people who were were really more enablers. They were not um, guardrails. They were not trying to constrain the president's bad instincts. They were trying to execute what the president wanted done. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the chiefs of staff Mick Mulvaney, and then Mark Meadows. I mean, these were people trying to find ways to get to a yes and, and to give the president exactly what he wanted. Yeah, you say in your book, and this is one of the best lines, I think, two kinds of people went to work for the administration, those who thought Trump was saving the world and those who thought the world needed to be saved from Trump. But that 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 is is such an interesting thing, the that that one by one he wore these people down and got rid of them. Why they never could have said, you know, made a kind of blood oath that, you know, they stick together and if one of them was being threatened with being fired, they all would threaten to resign. And that would that was the myth you know, that somehow collectively they would be able to stand up to him. And they weren't. They weren't. And, you know, ultimately, though, he's the president and he's the the person that the people of this country uh, chose as the leader. And he was elected and he has every right to um, to hire and fire administration officials at will. And so they, you know, certainly Mattis and Kelly and Tillerson and, and Gary Cohn, the economic advisor, they tried to protect each other and they tried to to basically to keep, keep one another from getting fired and, and back, back up one another when they were trying to challenge something Trump did. But their power was limited because they're not the elected president and and as Trump grew into the job month by month, he became more confident in his in his ability to exercise power. And he finally, you know, two years in felt like he can get rid of these guys and build the government he really wanted. Yep. Yep. And this this is a book ultimately about the United the US presidency, you know, and the powers that it has and the damage it can do. But you know, it's interesting, the two kinds of people, the ones who are total Trump fans and the ones who wanted to protect the world from Trump, there is, I guess, a third type of person, or at least a third explanation for the broad Republican support for him. I'm not talking about the grassroots, I'm talking about elites, which is that he did move the conservative project forward in big ways, Absolutely. tax cuts, deregulation, and most importantly, the courts. I mean, there are people who thought the chaos was worth was worth it. In other words, the devil's bargain was a pretty good one. Exactly. And, you know, so many powerful people in the Republican Party, starting, I, I would say, with Mitch McConnell, the Senate, uh, longtime Senate leader, uh, made that bargain. They privately were repulsed by things Trump did. They thought he was amoral. Uh, they didn't like the chaos and dysfunction of, of the way he governed. Um, they worried about uh, 
calamities every day. And, and yet they went along for the ride because look at what Trump did. He stacked the courts with conservative jurists. He uh, lowered taxes for corporations and the wealthy. Uh, he loosened all of these regulations that enabled businesses to do uh, things that they felt uh, they couldn't do in the Obama years. And, and you know, that uh, to many of these Republican elected leaders and, and uh, financial backers was, was more than worth the bargain. Yep. And, you know, when when you long in the future, when you were retired and teaching Trump 101 in the university, <laughs> one of your lectures is going to be about Syria. One of your lectures is going to be about foreign policy and Jim Mattis and what happened there. And that was something that is super con- consequential, uh, probably reverberates in the region to this day. You know, it was the day America betrayed the Kurds. So if you could yeah. just talk about that a little and you talk about this extraordinary phone call with Erdogan. The backdrop here is that Donald Trump, dating to his campaign, uh, ran on withdrawing America's presence from these foreign wars and entanglements. He wanted troops home. He wanted America first. He wanted us focusing on our domestic problems and effectively withdrawing from the world. And, you know, a, a central theater here was Syria, where we were, our, our military was assisting the Kurds. And Defense Secretary Mattis and others in the government were uh, for months trying to implore the president to maintain our presence in Syria, that the Kurds would uh, be overtaken if we were to withdraw. And yet Trump uh, got pressured by Erdogan, the president of, of Turkey, an authoritarian Former client leader, of Mike Flynn. And a former client of Mike Flynn. Uh, and by the way, there's a, a great little detail in the book about how Trump would get so taken by the sound of Erdogan's voice on the phone that he had this deep, dark, kind of gravelly voice when they talked on the phone and Trump thought it conveyed power and strength. Uh, anyhow, Trump... Uh, they didn't speak. They, they spoke through a translator? Through a translator, through, through a but translator, he loved yeah. the sound of his voice. Yeah. So Trump was persuaded by Erdogan to uh, to withdraw American troops from Syria, decided to do it. Mattis protested and uh, and Trump went ahead and did it. And that's why Mattis resigned. And he wrote this resignation letter that was a damning letter um, laying out the, the ways in which the president's vision for the world differed so much from his own. Um, the irony here is that Trump actually walked back that uh, decision on Syria after Mattis resigned and, and didn't actually follow through with withdrawing the troops until about a year later. Uh, but ultimately, we did with- withdraw. We did abandon the Kurds. And, and there was devastation on our watch because of it. And it sounds like this was a decision that he made during the phone call. It was an impulsive decision. It was an impulsive a gut, decision. Yeah. yeah, because the president of Turkey wanted him uh, to do this and he agreed to do it with him without uh, without really fully consulting his Pentagon. We're going to get to Trump governance versus other presidents' governance styles <laughs> in a minute. But I want to I want to go back. You know, we just talked about adults in the room. I want to talk for a minute about the kids in the room, Ivanka and Jared, or Javanka, as they were known in Washington. This is an unusual situation. I mean, we know that that John F. Kennedy's brother had a high-ranking job, but we have these two a ch- child, a daughter, and a son-in-law. What do you think was the impact? of Jared and Ivanka? You know, it's so interesting because um, 
they're in these jobs for which they they had virtually no qualification. I mean, Ivanka has been a, a business leader. She has her own brand of of clothing goods and and other stuff. Um, and Jared Kushner, a real estate developer, but neither had any expertise in the government or in the policy matters that the president was dealing with. And yet both were these untouchable senior advisors who floated around the West Wing and, and you know, their power was largely unchecked. If, if there's something Jared wanted done, it got done. You know, he he wrote above the chief of staff. He wrote above the cabinet members. And that's because their family and Trump prioritized family above all. Their defenders will say that they were at times a moderating influence on their father and father-in-law. And what I mean by that is, is in particularly hot moments, Ivanka in particular had an ability to talk to uh, Trump and, and sort of persuade him to say and do what she thought was the right thing. But that was there, there was limited evidence of that because, of course, the president time and again said and did the wrong thing. <laughs> right. I was just going to ask you, is that can you think of an example where Ivanka moderated Trump? Well, this is this is not um, in our in our book exactly, but she very recently on January 6th was credited with being one of the people to convince the president to finally uh, issue the statement telling his supporters to go home uh, when they were you know rioting at after the they'd sacked the Capitol, <laughs> but after they sacked it, and, <laughs> yes, and of right, course right. it took many right, hours. Right, right. Um, so That's I'm not right. sure that was such a heroic <laughs> move. And and you know what, there are plenty of examples that we document in the book where she failed to persuade the president. She was advocating strongly that he keep the United States in the Paris Climate Accords, that that was essential for the health of the environment around the world, and the president rejected her advice there. Jared Kushner's a different case, and and he actually became very entangled in in foreign affairs, especially in the Middle East, especially with Saudi Arabia. He developed a very close relationship with the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and you know, created, he was sort of like a heat missile. He he just drew these controversies and had to navigate his way around it. But the ultimate bottom line for these two is they were a little naive when it came to government. They, they didn't really know uh, how the government worked. They thought they were the experts. They thought they were the smartest people in the room. And it turned out time and again, they were not. Right. But you could, I guess the most positive thing you'd say about Kushner's contribution is he helped foster or accelerate a move in the Middle East among certain Arab countries to make alliances with Israel, to kind of reshuffle the Middle East in a way that would be enhance Israel's security. And that could end up being a lasting uh, contribution. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the subtitle of your book is Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. And I've said for the last, you know, four years that Donald Trump was a stress test on democratic institutions. You know, the founding fathers created a system of institutions and checks and balances because they knew it was possible for someone with demagogic tendencies, they would have called it monarchical tendencies, to become president. They just wanted to make sure that that person couldn't do too much damage once he became president. So they thought they erected these super strong, overlapping, counterbalancing institutions. So what I want to ask you is now that we are in the post-Trump era, at least in terms of the White House, not politically, and we'll get to that later, how much damage do you think Trump did to democratic institutions or did they survive intact, just a little roughed up and scarred? 
they they survived, but not intact. Um, and it's more than more than a scar here or there. Um, and it depends on the institutions you're talking about. But the the rule of law, the you know Justice Department's independence, and all of that has been forever changed, and will take a lot of of work to get back. I'm not sure that that Joe Biden can wave a wand and revert to 2015 America. I mean, these, this is some permanent damage that's been done to institutions. But if you think beyond just the government, there are institutions that he's fundamentally changed. He's changed how we think about truth and fact and honesty and how people consume media and, and what they believe. And he's created an enormous amount of distrust among a very large and vocal minority in this country. Uh, not to believe what they're told, not to believe what they're told by the government, not to believe what they're told by media organizations, not to believe basic facts that the sky is blue. And and that's a, a really societal problem that America is going to have to grapple with in the years ahead that goes beyond just the, the institutions of our government. But certainly the the Democrats in Congress and in the Biden administration are looking for ways through legislation or through enacting more sort of permanent changes to our institutions to fortify what was proven to have been so vulnerable in the Trump years. Like so many other things that Donald Trump did, he didn't do this all by himself. You know, him plus the Facebook algorithm, you know, had a big hand in in undermining truth, which yeah. is which is an, a, an, a common set of facts from which we all work ourselves to different opinions is one of the building blocks of a cohesive democracy. I mean, without that, you're not going to be able to have much of, of a civil society. But, you know, so, there was so much talk during the Trump administration about the different kinds of damage he could do in four years versus eight years. He only had four. And it sounds like you're very pessimistic about the ability of democratic institutions, putting aside the assault on truth and the media and politics. But it sounds like you're very pessimistic about the ability of democratic institutions to repair themselves. I don't know that I'm that pessimistic. I mean, I think they, I think these institutions can be repaired and, and ultimately uh, this country, I think will remain a democracy, but I think it will, it will take time and and look different. It's not, I don't think it's enough to just change the presidency. I mean, I think fundamental changes are going to have to to take place to prevent something like this from happening again. If you think about Trump were to run for for president again in 2024 and and perhaps win, he can pick up where he left off and these institutions are still very vulnerable today and fragile and in some cases broken and you know, I, they're they're not at a state where they can withstand uh, another another Trump or or a Trump wannabe who's going to know exactly which pressure points to push and how to break them further. Right. What are you covering now? I'm now our, I, I had been our White House bureau chief through the Trump years, and now I'm senior Washington correspondent for the Washington oh. Post, which just means that I- Which is I, what Dan was? Dan Baltz? No. No, he's he's the chief correspondent. Ah. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of kind of project reporting and and longer term pieces about the government, you know, both the White House and Congress and, and and things here in Washington as well as politics of course, but at the current moment I'm at work on another book with Carol Lenig where we're writing about Trump's final year uh, in office 2020. So in your new role, now we can maybe broaden the aperture a little and talk about Trump's lasting impact on politics. One of the things that 
the Trump years revealed? Well, one of the things they revealed is that everything that I thought I knew about politics was wrong. (laughs) It was a very humbling experience. And I used to say historical rules only work till they stop working. However, one thing that happened surprisingly during the Trump years is that the laws of political gravity were not completely abolished by Donald Trump. Presidents who never break 50% approval rating generally do not get a second term, and he didn't. And 46%, which is what he won with the first time, is usually what Republican candidates get when they lose. It's what John McCain got. And the second time, obviously, he got more. He got 47 points something. But that's what Republican candidates get when they lose. So, the, you know, when you say Donald Trump could pick up where he left off, unless we have another one of these hopefully rare elections where the popular vote goes in a different direction than the Electoral College, you're saying that he could come back winning the popular vote, maybe. Oh, I don't know. I, I just, you know, it, it's difficult to predict what the election atmosphere is going to be like in four years. But he won the presidency in 2016. He came relatively close in 2020, given how catastrophic that year was for the country and how devastated the economy is and and the, the fact that he was only a few states shy of, of winning re-election. There's a very real possibility that he could could run again in four years and win. I mean, I would still win the Electoral College without the popular vote. And that's the yeah, key. Yeah, yeah. That's the key. And that's, you know, yet another big conversation we can have at another time. But this huge discussion we're now having about the difference between minority rights and minority rule. And nobody really thinks or cares about the Electoral College unless it goes in the opposite direction of the popular vote. And, you know, that's something that I don't know how many of these elections, 2000 and 2016, that we can take and still be a stable democracy where the guy who has the fewest votes ends up being president. But the fact that he almost won the electoral vote, I think he came within something like 44,000 votes, meant that he could try to do what he did, which is overturn the election results. He couldn't overturn the popular vote he could only try to overturn the electoral college vote. So the electoral college was was revealed as something that that made American democracy even more vulnerable. But let's talk for a minute about Trump's style of governance and you've described it in the book really well as super chaotic and done pretty much out of Trump's head or from his gut and we're now seeing a huge 180 degree contrast in presidential styles of governance. Joe Biden's the president. We've had what you could call a gusher of governance, tons of briefings, uh, well thought out policies, whether they're going to be successful in the end or not, we don't know. But it certainly is more like what we've been used to. Talk a little bit about that contrast and what you think it means. I mean, do you think there's a lot of Republicans who want to go back to the Trump style of governance? I love that phrase, by the way, gusher of government. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of it in the last 45 we days. We sure have, and it's it's got a nice ring to it. You laid out the differences really well. It's a completely reverse style of governing, and it seems very deliberate by Biden and, and Ron Klain as chief of staff and the, and the rest of that team to establish a contrast from Trump to show the world, really, that there's sort of a return to normalcy and a, and a steady hand here in the United States. I think Republicans prefer 
this style of governing just because it, it it's easier to manage. It's easier to see around a corner to predict what's going to happen. Um, they know they're not going to agree. And I'm talking about Republicans on Capitol Hill. Right, in Congress, Congress yeah. They know they're not going to uh, agree with a lot of the agenda items that Biden puts forward, but they at least know what they are and, and can can predict and, and see where the Biden administration is going to land on things. That's a much easier way to govern as the opposition party than to have to wake up every morning, not sure what the tweet is going to say. Right. And Biden would have governed this way no matter who he followed. But yes, but this is governance. And what you said, there there could be a Trumpist president in the future who believes in all the same things that Trump did, but is just much more adept at, at working the levers of government and much more competent about getting his agenda through. Maybe if Trump had been more competent, there would be a wall on the Mexican border right now. And you know what? He, there could also be more more serious damage to our institutions yes. had Trump been more competent and and had he been less impulsive and 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 really stuck to a disciplined strategy to uh, achieve what he wanted to achieve. Yep, no doubt about that. So let's talk about Trumpism a little bit because we know that Trumpism isn't gone. Trump himself isn't gone from the political scene. He has an extremely firm grip on the Republican Party. How do you think Trump sees his? near and midterm future, sitting there in Mar-a-Lago? Is he seething? Is he full of grievance? Or does he feel like he's still the head of a uh, of a movement that worships him? What do you think? First of all, he does feel like he's still the head of a movement that worships him, but he is trying, and when we see it almost every day now, trying to prove that he is still the head of the Republican Party. He um, doesn't he, want them to fundraise off his exactly. name. Exactly. He's out of office. He has no title. Um, he has no position of power in the party. And, and yet he's trying to remind, uh, fellow Republicans every day through threats, through the, uh, the legal warning that he issued the other day about not fundraising, uh, under his name. Uh, but, and, and encouraging last night, he, he put out a, a message saying all of his supporters should be donating to his political action committee, not to the Republican party organizations. I mean, that's because he wants to establish himself as the leader of this party. And he wants to be the kingmaker in the 2022 midterm cycle. We're already seeing a parade of, you know, Republican hopeful candidates flock to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring effectively to audition in front of President Trump to win his endorsement. He has vowed to back primary challenges to the 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach him and to the seven, well, many of them are not running in the next cycle, but to Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska, who was among the seven uh, to vote to uh, to uh, convict the president in his impeachment trial. And we'll see if that bears any fruit, but he's determined to take these people out. And, uh, and he wants to lay the groundwork to run again in 2024. He's talked openly with his advisors about doing so. As a Trump watcher, and, and you may agree, Mara, I'm a little skeptical that he'll actually run for president again in 2024, but he's keeping it open. And uh, he, the effect there is he's sort of freezing the field of potential right. candidates who would like right. to succeed him. I totally agree with you. I think for Donald Trump, who's a creature of the media, just keeping the news cycle alive that he might run is more important than whether he actually runs or not. I completely agree with you. I think keeping the idea alive that he might run Gives him a tremendous amount of power, as you said, freezes the field, and of course, lets him control the narrative, which for him is his number one metric for success. But realistically, do you believe that he does control the Republican Party right now? 
I think he does control the Republican Party right now. There's no rival in terms of uh, somebody who can command the following of these tens of millions of, of activists out in the country, somebody who can command legislative leaders like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell to follow his lead. There's no comparison. I mean, Trump Trump is the leader of this party. The question becomes, you know, fast forward a year or two, does Trump still have the same kind of power that he has today? And uh, is the does a, a current governor or, or somebody who's looking at running for president start to carve out his or her own coalition uh, to really challenge Trump. But, you know, as of right now, it doesn't look like anybody's going to be able to challenge him. No. And this is one of the big questions about politics. And I'm sure you'll be writing about this in your new role. What does the Republican Party stand for? Up until now, it stood for exact whatever Donald Trump wanted at a given moment. You know, what is Trumpism? Obviously, it's no more belief in free trade or openness to immigration. It's kind of isolationist. It has a strong streak of white identity politics. Is that the Republican Party post-Trump? It's the Republican Party today <laughs> and and probably will be the Republican Party for some time until Trump um, until Trump takes a back seat. And, you know, it's really going to take a, a new presidential nominee uh to establish any kind of a new agenda or a shift in direction for the Republican Party. But you look at the Republicans in Congress and, you know, they're almost entirely in the mold of Trump. And and those who challenge any of uh, any aspects of Trumpism, like a Liz Cheney, who's more hawkish on foreign policy or or like a Mitt Romney, um, they're in a very lonely place. I mean, there's not uh, there's not a lot of support within the Republican Party for um, for divergent views. Speaking of which, how successful do you think Kevin McCarthy will be at creating a tent big enough for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney? Because that's what he's trying to do. <laughs> he's trying to. I, you know, I don't know that that tent is big enough just yet because there's there's not really room for both of them. Look at look at Liz Cheney. She's being censured by her own Republican Party back home in Wyoming. So there, there's not tolerance right now for people who are going to stray from the Trump line. But obviously, Kevin McCarthy and, and Mitch McConnell, too, uh, want to create room for all sorts of Republicans, in part because they want to be a majority governing party again. And and they know to win back some of those House seats, to win back some Senate seats, they're going to need to appeal beyond the Trump base. Right. And it's unclear where, other than maybe Alaska, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump will actually be going head to head in a Republican primary in two years. It's unclear. Might be nowhere. There might be just some open seats where they have two different ideas about who could be the better candidate. But it sounds like Mitch McConnell is doing the exact same thing as Kevin McCarthy, but maybe with a little more finesse. I mean, he voted not to impeach Trump and then gives a very scathing speech about him on the floor. Do you see any fundamental difference between what McConnell is trying to do and what McCarthy's trying to do? Yeah, I mean, McConnell is is creating more distance between him and Trump. McCarthy's the one who flew down to Mar-a-Lago to beg for the president, former president's support. Uh, McConnell has kept his distance; is not really on speaking terms with Trump. Yes, he voted to acquit, as did you know many of the other Republican senators. But he condemned Trump, and he's made very clear in his public comments that he's looking to move on. And importantly, that has sent a signal to the business world, to the financial class of, of people who. Who back Republican candidates in the future that the Republican Senate under Mitch McConnell is going to be different than than simply just Trump. And, and that's the message he feels he needs to send in order to win back 
uh, Senate seat to recruit challengers and to draw in the money that it's going to take to to run in the midterms. And so far, Trump has been completely silent about anything that you could call policy. We haven't heard him talk about we've we've heard him say maybe negative things about Joe Biden. And maybe there's still a little railing about socialists, but he hasn't engaged, especially as the Congress just voted for the size of individual stimulus checks that he wanted them to do before the election, which I think is kind of ironic. It is ironic, and he's not weighing in on any matters of substance, as you rightly pointed out. And the stimulus check could actually, this could be a a very difficult political situation for Republicans because that bill, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, is is widely popular, according to public opinion surveys. And people are going to be getting those checks in the mail. And that money is going to be helping communities and cities and and state governments and small businesses around the country. And those are things that Democrats are going to be able to campaign on. But importantly, they're also going to be able to point out that every single Republican voted no. And, you know, why was Senator X opposed to opposed to giving you your $1,400? I mean, that's a compelling campaign line. Yes. And if you believe that Trump would have lost worse if he hadn't sent out all if Congress hadn't passed all that other stimulus. In other words, there are a lot of voters who said, hey, Trump sent me a check. So those kind of individual assistance really, really matter. I want to wrap it up here and ask you just one last question. I know, like I said earlier, It's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But one year from now, what do you predict Trump is going to be doing and saying? And will his grip on the party be the same as it is now? What do you think? Fast forward. You know, I think it will be the same as it is today. I think the real question is, will it be the same two years from now when the next presidential cycle starts going? And I don't know how to answer that, honestly. I mean, I think a lot depends on whether he truly wants to run for president. If he runs for president again, the nomination is probably his for the taking. You know, certainly there could be challenges and, and, and other ambitious Republicans who, who would like to be the nominee. But if he if he actually pulls the trigger and goes forward, it's hard to imagine the Republican Party, as we understand it today, not going with Trump again. Right. Four years is a long time, but it's not that long to imagine that they would want to abandon him. Yeah. 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 Altogether by then. I agree with you. And that could be something that Democrats would really like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that it'll be, be hard. It'll be hard for, for Biden and, and Harris. You know, I mean, I think the country's going to have to get into a better place for them to have a, a strong chance at reelection. Right. Absolutely. But then we'll be able to test how much people miss Trump. Exactly. That'll be the big the big question. Phil Rucker, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I, I'd be happy to do it again. Uh, thank about you, Mara. Your next this book. Great. <laughs> good to talk with you. Yes. Good to talk with you. Please visit KentuckyAuthorForum.com for more information and for show notes on today's podcast. And please take a minute to rate and review Great Podversations in your podcast app. Great Podversations is distributed by Louisville Public Media. It's a production of the University of Louisville, Kentucky Author Forum. Mary Moss Greenbaum, producer, Evie Clare, associate producer, and Leslie Sissel, consultant. Great Podversations is supported by Bittner's... Brown Foreman Foundation, the Geens Foundation, James Graham Brown Foundation, and LDG Development. 
We hope you enjoyed this great podversation. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to your joining me for the next great podversation. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Thank you.